And so the dominant system is at the moment is driven towards elite athletes. What we're trying to do is get people to become elite athletes as soon as possible. So people are being channeled and picked from the ages between five and nine. And so the interesting thing is what they found in British soccer is what that's resulting in is a decrease in the success of the national team. Because what's happening is kids aren't enjoying playing when they're young. So they don't learn any of the technical skills. All they learn is to focus on winning. What I'd love is for people to feel the gift of sport in your body, what it does to your confidence and your courage and you're seated in your body without, can it be possible to do that without kind of the shadow side? And right now I don't think sport's set up to do that. You're listening to Find the Outside, the podcast. I'm Tim Merry. I'm Tuesday Ryan Hart. This week on the podcast, we're going to dig into a specific piece of work we've been in around sport, uh, partly because we think it's helpful for you to hear us talk about a place where we're really applying everything we're doing, but also because sport has been formative for both Juice and I in how we go about our work. Right, Juice? Yeah, it's it's was formative in our, our growing up lives, yeah. right? There's something about the Big intersection. Time. Part of why I thought this would be cool for us to talk about is there's a real intersection between our growing up I mean our current kind of physical activity and our work it just feels like a a bit of a piece altogether like we don't necessarily always have personal experience when we're talking about modernizing municipalities for example or even working in philanthropy like we don't always have like direct lived experience although we can find a place of real commitment and passion and care Um, but the sport work feels a little bit different and I was struck yesterday as we were in a room That's right. With our clients and both of us, like at two different moments, kind of shared personal experience with sport in a way that I think deepened or turned the room a bit. And so I thought, well, let's bring that here. Yeah, yeah. Because there was something we we were doing kind of a teach on the floor because we're working. This group is about to launch into kind of 18 months worth of kind of like highly iterative systems intervention around the sports sports system. Um, And uh, we were teaching on the floor what you can expect. Like, here's some of the things you can expect as we leap into this work. We're not in the like building the focus areas period. We're not into deciding the prototype. Like, here we go. We're off, you know. And uh, and I think it, I think we'd in as we are we'd been fairly jokey in an early part of it you know mm-hmm. and uh, and and someone had said is that, someone had asked me earlier on is that true what you just said and I was like no no I'm just I was just giving an example I was joking and then later on in the teach I was like I I said something like yeah you know and I I because I quite literally stepped back from the edge of a building because I wanted to play a rugby game the next day right and uh, and then there was this kind of silence in the room and someone was like is is that one true? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you remember? You right? And I was like, and I was like, yeah, no, that one's true. Like, like, you know, this like sport quite literally was the reason that I didn't jump, that I stepped back off the edge of the building. And cause we had a game the next day. And I remember standing on the edge of the building with my buddy is the boarding house and the boarding school, just standing there looking over the edge and us talking about whether we would. And, uh, mm-hmm. and him being like, no, there's a game tomorrow and it's important. We win it, you know? Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay. Not today. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe after the game. Yeah, but not today. <laughs> so, Tim, tell me a little bit about tell me a little bit about sport for you, Grant. What sport were we even talking about? What was the game the next day? Right. So, rugby was rugby was the sport I played uh, the most of. Um, I think a lot of uh, what I I was really drawn to impact sports. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I think um, uh, I think the circumstances I was in at my school and what I'd experienced in my family just gave me a. I was, I was angry. I was angry as a teenager. You know, um, and I was simultaneously afraid of my anger because I'd been on the receiving end of other people's anger right. and knew what a dangerous thing it could be. 
Right. Right. And so, um, and so I felt safe in a game like rugby to be really aggressive because there was a referee and really clear rules, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And there was something about like impact sport that got me into my body, you know, that yeah. like got me out of my mind and the yeah. self doubt and the, and the anxiety that I lived with day to day. Um, uh, it was just like I came out of a rugby game just generally feeling more at home in myself, mm. you know, having like bashed bodies with a bunch of people. Like not only had I got out a lot of the anxiety or anger at the situations I found myself in, it was almost like I'd beaten myself back into my body. Mm. And uh, and I was and, uh, I felt more home. I felt like it's, it's like some of the most relaxed and complete I felt as a young man was after rugby games, was after those kind of games. So there was something about... Uh, so I think it was a way for me to release things, yeah. you know, but I think it was also a way for me in the midst of trauma to feel at home inside myself. Yeah. So... When did you start and when when did you stop? I mean, I assume a human body has to stop rugby at some point. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started playing rugby probably about um, eight, seven or eight years old, maybe Mm -hmm. younger. So I started playing rugby then. um, And then I played all the way through uh, to when I was living in the Netherlands. So I probably played until I was about 26, 27 years old. So I did a bit of club rugby in England. I paid for a club in the Netherlands. Um, And then I kind of stopped playing and started running and doing yoga and other things, partly because I got injured playing in the Netherlands. Right? Ah. Someone just took a shoulder right into the center of my back and it really did my back in. Um, So I I ended up like taking a big hiatus and then not going back to it. Um, I I went back to it here a little bit. We started playing touch rugby here. Okay. Um, Just in in my home bay on Sunday afternoons which was great I loved it and then it came to the point where someone was like let's just do contact for like 20 minutes you know like the next day I like I couldn't walk and I was like <laughs> you know like I couldn't like let my right shoulder drop and uh, and so I was like okay I'm not built for the this kind of contact sport anymore at, at 40 years old so uh but um so um so yeah so I think that gives you a bit of a a bit of a, a span of it you know but you yeah. were you were also um you know gymnast right I yeah. mean you and you were you were heading into like college scholarships yeah. with your gymnastics yeah. like it was a big deal it was a huge part of your life right oh goodness it's hard to kind of overestimate what it was like being a gymnast and how much that was part of my early life and that was actually the moment yesterday in the room too where I could feel the room like kind of like pause um I said that uh for me we were talking about the deeper why like yeah. why is this work important of course of course of course we want to transform the system right? You, know, right you know people get excited about get excited at the front end about change um and there's kind of an assumption that of course we want to do this and we were trying to get to the deeper why and one of the things that I said is you know it matters that this project is about sport to me because sport was in some ways was my um understood path out of poverty, right? So I, you know, I had anticipated going that that was how I was going to get to college was a a scholarship through gymnastics. I'd started at five and, um, and just loved it. I mean, but I think in the way that five-year-olds do, like they love throwing their bodies around, like who doesn't love that? And, you know, like throwing up against a mat and swinging around bars. And, uh, I, and, and so my mom had put me in a class and then she said, um, months later, I was asked to draw something. It was in kindergarten. And I was asked to draw something. And I drew a picture of the uneven bars and putting chalk on your hands. And she was like, oh, maybe this is actually a thing wow. for this child. And so she put me in. And that was, you know, by the time I was done, I got injured at 16. Mm. I believe, yeah, I got injured at 16. 
I blew out my right knee um, and they called it a football injury. And in fact, yeah, they called it a football injury. They said, you know, most, and you know, of course I was a little person and you know, they're like most little people kind of don't get this kind of major injury. And so I was kind of the talk of the hospital where I had the surgery, right? Like go big or go home. Right. Um, that's it, so I did Never it. doing things by halves, no, mate. No, 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 no. And so I started at five and it was a key part. I mean, like it was my thing. You know, I, I did other small things on the side, but gymnastics was really my thing. And it was at the level, right, that when I was hurt, you know, we're talking five days a week, three or four hour practices a night, you know, meets every weekend from November to March. I mean, it was my thing. It was what I was right. going to do. It was what my whole identity was wrapped around. And I think similar to you, um, it was the place where I found myself over yeah. and over and it came back home into my body, right? So lots in my younger years, lots of abuse that kind of took me out of my body. Right. And gymnastics was the place where I could actually come back into and feel my body and feel the limits and make choices about my body in a way that weren't being allowed to me in other ways. And so, and uh, you know, and so there, I think I'm a real physical person. I think probably by nature, I'm a really physical yeah, person. Same. And so it fit. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something about, like I always say, I feel like I'm like, look, I've not done major gymnastics since I was 16 years old and blew out my knee. I mean, I've done flips and things like that, yeah, yeah. small things. But yeah. um, there's something for me around in some ways always being a gymnast. And that's mm. um, and I can say that because and and in this work, it really fits because in gymnastics, like the motion over and over and over again is you make a leap into air and you do not know how your body's going to land, oh, right? And you just trust, you have to learn, yeah. you have to practice, but then you trust your body to catch you, right? Right. And so like there's this, I, th- I think I have huge amounts of trust in myself, Yeah. like metaphorically doing a leap and trusting I'm going to land, you know, yeah. because physically, physically I did that leap over thousands oh, of times in my yeah, life. Um, and so I feel really... I mean, I feel scared, of course, a lot, but I don't, the, being scared doesn't stop me from making the leap. Totally right? get it. And so it feels like that's what it, that's what it was. So I was, yeah. I was trying to think about like, what are the repercussions of rugby on my life? And yeah. uh, I play, you know, I, for a while there, we were playing five-a-side soccer football in the, in the Mahone Bay Center gym. And uh, my buddy Dave, he always says, you know, I'm the only person who tackled him and managed to injure him in three places in one tackle, you know? Oh. <laughs> And there's this thing in rugby, which is like, you know, you protect and get the ball, mm. right, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, and and uh, I remember my, our coach was always like, you know, you're good because like you're absolutely not afraid. You'll throw yourself in to get and protect the ball in, you know, situations which like could end up you in, being in severe physical harm. But yeah. you're like, you'll just throw yourself in and get the ball, you know, and protect it and get it for the team and pull it out. And like people and the other experience from rugby is that when you do throw yourself in, what happens is you're other team members come around you and over you they literally like drive oh. the opposition off the ball right but the position I was playing I was playing like my job was to get to the breakdown right so when the ball was dropped when the opposition messed it up when something happened like I my job was to be first to the breakdown and secure the ball Whoa. right it's one of the major pieces of my work um, uh, and then uh, the rest of the team would come along because they weren't as fast as me and they weren't willing to or you know and then they would kind of secure it and drive it over so so I think there probably is some metaphor in there that I haven't had time to process like your uh, spinning through the air that is a big part of the work. But there is this sense of like getting there first and like throwing yourself in. That's a big, I think a big part of my attitude. And there's some kind of attitude of like, 
we're just going to get through this whatever that's part mm-hmm. of the rugby you know yeah which i mean kind of starts to flirt up against the like the dark side of sport too like i don't want to pretend that being a gymnast with all that it entailed what while it wasn't amazing yeah also had really hard parts there was a lot of i would say being a gymnast did uh and it was a really curious mixture of being completely in your body because mm. you have to be like every small movement you're on a four inch you know three and seven eighths wow. inch wide you know piece of wood or you know or you're you know like if you land just wrong you blow out your knee for example uh, you know like, every see, time i hear you say that i'm like i, I, I like wince you know it's yeah. like i feel like my knee go every time you say it. i'm like <laughs> oh my god oh my god Okay. Well, off the podcast, I'll do a dramatic reenactment oh, and you'll God, be even more like, grossed out. Like, you know, like not but, sleep tonight. Oh, I can still feel it. But, oh, um, I bet, right? Yeah. <sighs> so like there's this curious mix of like being totally in your body because yeah. you have to be every second. And because of what gymnastics and I think most sports and I'm sure rugby is like what it does to your body and yeah. the injuries like, oh, yeah. you know, no, like, I've got rugby injuries right? still that I'm living with now. Of course, like you, of course you compete on a broken toe or, you know, or, you know, your oh, hands yeah. are ripped open. Like that doesn't stop you. So it's this no. really interesting mix of like being completely in your body and like completely pushing away like your signals of distress or pain wow. and not being in it in that way. That's and so, right. And so it's just like, these are the things you also, I mean, as a gymnast, I don't know how it was is a gymnast of course there's also like huge restriction on your body you have to be very small very you know like so you have to like do things like turn off hunger and like not you know there's just like parts of the sport that are quite shadowy and so and I think that that's true for any sport like there's kind of I mean there's both the huge gift of it I would not do have anything different and I can still understand the huge kind of shadow side of that and so I remember early in our sport work talking about what I'd love is for people to feel the gift of sport in your body what it does to your confidence and your courage and you're seated in your body without can it be possible to do that without kind of the shadow side and right now I don't think sport's set up to do that I don't right. think the, no. the nature of sport is to do that. No, and that's actually what the uh, so much of the sport work is focused around is like how can the the culture of sport right be something that's accessible right? Let alone the economy of it right yeah. right. Let alone the kind of like structure of it in terms of who it prioritizes in terms of their color, race, ethnicity, how long their family's been in the province, who they know, do they know the coach? Is the coach a family friend? I mean, all of that stuff's playing out. But um, so this, I think that accessibility piece is huge like what's the culture of it and if I think about that in terms of rugby well that was one of the reasons I stopped playing right Mm. was because like the culture of the sport was so weird like I loved to play the game yeah I loved to play the game I loved to play rugby but like I really didn't like what happened after the game Ah. like they're getting absolutely like hammered drunk and then singing songs that like that like insulted women or uh, like or like force somebody to go through ridiculous initiation and you know things or like the kangaroo court that would happen in the bus on the way back you know or like what's that mean kangaroo kangaroo court was like you know if you drop the ball over there was a bunch of penalties that would be meted out depending on how you did in the game <gasps> all right and i would oh. just i, I just re- generally just refused to participate so they would try and do that to me and i'd just be like no <laughs> not interested you know like I'm <laughs> I'm just not part of this like yeah. I'm here to play rugby yeah. I'm not I'm not part of this whole yeah. thing afterwards That's but amazing. it just also got tiresome you know there was a piece of me that was like why am I hanging out with this bunch of like sexist mm. wankers you know yeah. what I mean and it, like not everybody on the team was like that um uh but but there was a really there was a dominant culture that didn't actually welcome me as a person who did theater 
you know, yeah. who wrote poetry, you know, right. who liked to look at clouds and pick flowers, you know, like there was a whole side of me that just like wasn't permitted into the world yeah. of rugby, um, even though I was a pretty good rugby player, you know what I mean? And, um, well, that's and, probably why and, you could survive in it, right? And you were worked a good enough hard, player. worked hard yeah. to be a good rugby, like I didn't have the natural build, like mm. I spent a lot of time in the gym being big and making myself big and strong so I could compete with some absolute monsters, do you know what I mean? And, uh, and take, learn how to take hits from them and get up and keep going and um so i think there's i think there is something in the in the culture of these sports that needs to be examined and uh and of course there's the enormous gift and the kind of like movement out of poverty absolutely but i'm sure that our society is reflected in the culture of our sports right I mean, how could it not be? Right. Right. It's that's exactly right. So as we're working with these folks who are talking about the culture of sport as they're talking, they're they're getting into some of these things like they know the possibility of sport. And sometimes they'll even talk about like sport for social change. Like they can yeah. social impact. Yeah. The, the kind of which is such a sporty. It's going to be impact. Exactly. <laughs> it's so fun. It's so it's such an interesting group, right? Because they're all athletes. They're all former athletes. They like all whether, want to win. They all want to Dino win. Do you remember Dino at the end of one of the first retreats we did, you know, the first retreat of the core team where like we'd secured the money, but none of the structure was in place. And we got to the end and one of the participants, his closing comments were like, I feel like we've got a really good team and now we can win, you know, which <laughs> right. kind of presupposes a finish line. It does presuppose a finish line, but it is interesting, right? Like this idea of, um, you know, I think on some, in some ways, because I think you played a team sport and I played an individual sport in some ways that these folks like get the team, like they get the collaboration, like it makes some sense to them, but they also get like win, right? Like just like go for it. And and if you have to kind of bully your way to do that, they also get that. It's such a, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, I don't think. This group in no way have we had to sell on kind of access and inclusion, no. right? Because they get it. Sport is a good thing. We want more people in it. I think participation the- is one of the measures of their success. Right. Right. And like the provincial government here has said, you are going to be measured on your ability to create sport access to marginalized communities That's in, right. our, in, in our province. And that includes newcomers as much as it includes the indigenous population or the African Nova Scotian population. Right. Right. And because, yeah. So. So I think that that's quite interesting because when we talk about access and inclusion, we're often talking, I mean, and I'm just going to shorthand it. And we had a a brief conversation in our prototype group yesterday. I was like, you know, we need to think about how much of our efforts are actually to creating a new sports system, right? right? And so how, and and yes, we want that sports system to be equitable. Like Mm. that's a no brainer. Mm. I don't think anyone's having any issue with that. They're also not having trouble with access and inclusion, but the question becomes how much of our efforts are are providing access and inclusion to a broken system, right? Ah. Right? And then how much of our efforts are put toward creating a new equitable system, right? right. So they're kind of two, and I'm not saying that we don't need activities in both, mm. but if we, as we said, there is a kind of downside or dark side or shadow side, everyone, to the current system and no how doubt. it reflects culture, no then how much do we want to absolutely put our efforts into reforming that system to get more people into a system that will eventually hurt them and maybe exploit them and maybe commodify them or create a new equitable system that is something different. And I think that that's where there's some differences in the group. I think they're good differences. I think they're healthy differences. But I think that that is a tension we're going to have to be working with all of the time. 
our particular project, the thrust of it is new system. Yeah, that's what we've been brought in to do, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so I've kind I've of got two simultaneous things running through my head, mm-hmm. which is like a, a kind of a thought about the dominant system and a hypothesis that we work from in yeah. doing this work, right? And so the dominant system is at, at the moment is driven towards elite athletes. What we're trying to do is get people to become elite athletes as soon as possible. So people are being channeled and picked from the ages between five and nine right Mm -hmm. to then being channeled in to becoming uh you know targets to get into clubs and teams to then access to coaching that others don't get to become elite athletes you know yeah and so the interesting thing is what they found in british soccer is what that's resulting in is a decrease in the success of the national team no way yeah because what's happening is kids aren't enjoying playing when they're young right so they don't learn any of the technical skills all they learn is to focus on winning Whoa. Right? And so you don't take any risks when you're focused on winning. Right. You don't take any risks when you're trying to get across the finish line first or get the goal. And if you lose, you failed. Right? Oh my gosh. Right? And so the complete, the lack of risk taking means you never actually become technically proficient. You don't know how to backheel the ball over your head and catch it on your foot and then drive it forward. Right? Because you'd never take that risk because it might mean you lose because you make a mistake on the pitch. Right? And so there's something really interesting embedded in the dominant system, yeah. which is built upon elite athletes and, and like channeling people into that stream early on that um, undermines the level of risk taking that we need from the people we're working with. You know? So actually, the will to win you know i think is um counterbalanced by the by the lack of risk taking that the current system encourages because it's like get people on podiums right right wow i feel like i saw that in the world cup this year yeah. you could tell the countries that were playing a defensive i remember watching and i don't want to say the country but i remember saying to scott like isn't this supposed to be called the beautiful game like this is not a beautiful game like Mate. and i'm not a huge Mate fan but like i'm watching this team and i'm going how are they playing in a way that is like so defensive so constricted so about avoiding making mistakes right rather than actually like going for it and you could feel the difference in the teams and it was so interesting that orientation i hadn't even considered it in the way that you just put it but right but think about it in terms of like the lifetime of an athlete right, right. and like i've got to say i'm a Yose, i'm a manchester united supporter and we have jose Mourinho in charge <laughs> at the moment and it's like horrible to watch you know i used to wear my man united kit and it would like threaten people you know like, i wear my manchester united t-shirt out and people would be like oh you're a united fan we hate you and now they're like oh we don't care whatever exactly. man oh it's cute you're wearing your kit oh my yeah oh, oh you're 10th in the league <laughs> And it's just because, and, he, and he's a completely defensive manager, yeah. you know. Um, so, th- so the other thing I want to say, just to kind of, kind of move on that, is like we're working from a hypothesis, right? That it, it, it cannot only be about creating the new. That right. there are essential roles in change. And like one of those roles is the, what the focus is in the sport work that we're involved in at the moment, which is like creating the new, building new systems that make the old dysfunctional system mm-hmm. or the dominant system obsolete. Yeah. Like that's what we're up to. But we know there's an essential role in change, which is about keeping the doors open on the Absolutely. dominant system, which is buying us time to create the yeah. new, right? Because like we actually need something viable that people can jump to, right? To be able, right? So we need we mm-hmm, need an extended right. period of experimentation to come up with a viable alternative to the dominant system that all the data is saying, all the anecdotal, right, and quantifiable data is saying isn't working, right? right? The structure of it isn't working. It isn't serving communities in this region. And so I think there's something... Um, uh, important to say is that this isn't just about part of our hypothesis is 
we need people who are helping the old system stay open and yes. we're helping it die and they're helping it dead detoxifying it you know as much as we need people meeting the new and part of what we're trying to educate people is that is that those are all part of change right right those are all change leadership roles Right. As much as the person out there on the stage illuminating the possible futures for sport is a leadership role, as much as the power brokers who kind of like make the money available and create the conditions for us to do things that are going to fail a lot and not get shut down, like all of those roles are important. And I think often um, people don't think about that role of oh my keeping goodness. the dominant system going as an essential piece of the change process. Right? Well, I think that that's exactly right. I think we get really excited about the new Right. Yeah. And so that's actually issue we were talking about. Like, let's actually think about proportionality of our efforts. Yeah. Do we want to go 60 40? You want to go 50 50? Like, actually, yeah. let's like be intentional because some of our efforts will be toward the old system. Because frankly, our children are in that old system now. Right. Right. Exactly. We, we must take care of the children in the system now and the adults in the system now and the seniors in the system now. I was thinking about and I feel like we'd be a little remiss if we didn't bring up the kind of the abuse scandals rocking the sports world. Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, to just say, create the new system, there are abuses in the old system that have to be addressed, like have to be stopped. And, and now, right. Like that is, that is worthy effort that we have to be involved in as well as we create the new. And so it's, it's not enough. It's, it's a little bit of, um, you know, we talked about always being aware. And one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about like the strategic choices we're making, yeah, right? And yeah. and knowing, you know, when we're going along with the status quo or reinforcing it. And so like, I think in some ways, only choosing to look toward the new can actually leave a lot of people behind, can actually yeah. marginalize a lot of people and often our most vulnerable people because they're not part of creating the new. They're just trying to get in the old or they're in the old being exploited by the older. You know, like, so it's just like, it's just not enough to just kind of turn your face toward the new. We have to do both. You end up looking over your shoulder and realizing nobody's with you. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, the sport works underway. We yeah. kicked it off, right? We've got a we've got a multi-stakeholder core team. We'll come back to this over the 18 months that we're going to be working with them. It's taken us 18 months to get here. That's right. Just to be clear, like the foundations we've laid here of working with senior leaders, doing strategic planning with different organizations. There's been, a, it's actually been about a two year foundational phase yeah. to get to this point where we're actually moving into the shared work. So it was a very exciting moment to kind of yeah. l- launch it yesterday, you know, yeah. and the kind of reallocation of human resources behind the scenes to kind of move this into play it's been such a massive kind of like strategic effort of heavy lifting to create the conditions for fundamental change right within the midst of these dominant systems and 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 to say that i just think it's that it's like both it's like there's fundamental change going on which is about reinvigorating and reinventing and creating the new and there's incremental change going on that is keeping the dominant system working and improving in response to the circumstances that our children find themselves in right Mm -hmm. and and adults find themselves in within that system so it's like both we can't choose you know we need to think about both of those as part of the strategy yeah magic got a song so i'm gonna go for the young fathers and it's uh in my view
and they're doing some of the most, uh, I think, brilliant and cutting edge hip hop that's around mm. at the moment. So uh, go check them out. Uh, Young you fathers, should... in my view. I'm assuming that you have some beautiful piece of poetry to share with us coming uh, from the depths of your computer. <laughs> well, I hope so. Uh, and uh, I was just thinking like why this is a bit for me is that uh, when we talked about the deeper why of the sport work, part of what I came to was that, uh, you know, my headline about my deeper why was kind of, you know, brown girls are happy and confident and feel at home in their bodies. Like that's, that's right. what I want for sport. And yeah. so... I find myself, and maybe it's my age, you know, just like thinking about future brown girls a lot. And so this poem, which was sent to me by our friend Wendy Morris. Uh, yeah. Hi, Wendy. Yeah. It's called Dark Testament, verse eight, and it's by Polly Murray. Hope is a crushed stalk between clenched fingers. Hope is a bird's wing broken by a stone. Hope is a word in a tuneless ditty. A word whispered with the wind, a dream of 40 acres and a mule, a cabin of one's own and a moment to rest, a name and a place for one's children, and children's children at last. Hope is a song in a weary throat. Oh, give me a song of hope and a world where I can sing it. Give me a song of faith and a people to believe in it. Give me a song of kindliness and a country where I can live in it. Oh, give me a song of hope and love and a brown girl's... Do I need to start again? You just started that line. Okay. All right. It's the last line. Okay. I'm like, I can't do it again. All right. Okay. Oh, give me a song of hope and love and a brown girl's heart to hear it. Thanks, Juice. Yeah. Thanks, Wendy Morris. You've been listening to Find the Outside the Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. New episodes are available every second Tuesday. That's right. If you'd like to get in touch with us about something you heard on the show, you can reach us at podcast at findtheoutside.com. And don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist. It has all of the music on there that we suggest in uh, on our podcast. And also don't forget all of the kind of books and songs and everything we have is on the uh, podcast notes. So you can find those either on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Mark Coffin at Sound Good Studio for making us sound so amazing. And thanks to Gary Blakemore for the awesome opening and closing music. See you next time. Bye.